Welcome to Zeitgeist with Zach Geist. I'm your host, Zach Geist. This show is made possible by Student Loan Tutor, which you can find at studentloantutor.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please take a moment and give us a review. Today I'm here with Ed Tick or Edward Tick, PhD. Um, hello, Ed. Hello, Zach. Great to be with you. Thank you. Uh, I just wanted to chime in real quick and uh, about how I ended up coming in contact with you was actually through uh, uh, Asclepius. And uh, Ed has worked with, he's known for probably many things amongst his friends, but uh, amongst people that would find him on the internet or through his work, uh, he's, correct me if I'm wrong, most known for uh, the work he does around Asclepian dream healing or dream incubation and going to healing, uh, essentially retreats uh, to Greece. And then also working with uh, PTSD and traumatized war veterans from the Vietnam War and going until today, uh, you know, still working in that field as a psychotherapist, uh, doing talks, speaking, and uh, pretty much uh, one of the pioneers in the PTSD world, which isn't just uh, relegated to the world of uh, combat veterans, but also uh, to pretty much everybody, there's the presence of uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. Do you want to touch on on your work and uh, what led us to where we're at here today in 2020? Uh, sure. Thank you, for the, the, thank you for the invitation to join you and talk with your audience and followers. <clears throat> and uh, yeah, you got my, inf- uh, my introduction right. Those are the two contributions and fields that I'm m- my, uh, most well known for. And actually, my work with on PTSD and with veterans led me to my work with Asclepius. But my work in the Greek tradition much earlier led me to working with veterans. So it's a big, wonderful circle that uh, I've been integrating in my life. So who is Asclepius and how did PTSD, P, working with PTSD patients lead you to uh, uh, this, this Asclepius that we're, that we're speaking about, which is the main purpose of this episode is to really dive into, uh, the myth and who and what and, and where and why Asclepius essentially. Yes, absolutely. So let's share with all our listeners, uh, in case they don't know that Asclepius is the ancient Greek God of healing. He was active and his healing practices uh, were very active and widespread in the ancient Mediterranean world, not just Greece, but all over the Mediterranean from Egypt in the east to uh, Spain, uh, the Iberian Peninsula on the west and from uh, from the Balkans in uh, north of Greece all the way to the northern coast of Africa. So Asclepius was the Greek god of healing and the Asclepian tradition gave the Western world both, we understand that today as medicine and psychology, both come directly from this tradition, and we'll talk about how that happened. Um, Asclepius as one of the, was a major Greek god. He was not one of the 12 Olympians in that core pantheon. He was a son of Apollo, and we can talk about his myth, but he was elevated to the Godhead and joined uh, the Olympians up on Mount Olympus, uh, somewhere in mythic history, no dates on these things. Um, and as the, uh, this is also 
um, well, he gave us, he and his tradition and his followers gave us what we understand as medicine and psychology today, but spiritually based and from its origins in shamanism. So over a 3000 year development, uh, when the Greek enlightenment came and we know, we know of Hippocrates as the father of scientific medicine, Hippocrates was actually a son and grandson of Asclepian priests who inherited the tradition, but then changed it into a scientific materialist, imperialist, imp sorry, I said imperialist. That's a Freudian slip. <laughs> a scientific and rational um, and empirical practice. So Hippocrates was a naturopath, but did not believe in or practice the spiritual dimensions. And that changed medicine and its development um, forever. And we've inherited that now. But that's some of the background. Um, let's go back to storytelling and then we can go back into the ancient world together, as well as bring it into the modern world. I'd love to tell the story of how I first met Asclepius because it's directly and intimately related to my work with veterans with post-traumatic stress disorder. Yeah, I'd love to hear how you met Asclepius. Thank you. It was uh, it's a wonderful story. Uh, okay, uh, I'm 69. So I turned 18 in 1969 at the height of the Vietnam War. Um, without telling that whole story, I didn't have to serve during the Vietnam War. Uh, I was applying for a conscientious objector status. If I didn't get it, I, the only way I could have served, I had decided would to be to go as a medic. Um, though I, it was, the war was hideously immoral and wrong and I didn't want to go at all, but I never turned against our troops. I was supporting them. And like the Vietnamese, I saw them as a victim of the war, just as the Vietnamese were. So I got my master's degree in psychology in 1975, the year the war ended. And I was living in a rural part of, very rural part of central New York state where there were a lot of veterans. I was invited into a medical practice as a beginning psychotherapist. So there I was in my mid to late twenties and Vietnam vets started to come into my practice. At the time, everybody was afraid of them and they were demonized and they were, many of them were acting out in, in very violent um, activities, massacres. Um, people, I don't even know if people remember the mass shootings we had back then in the seventies, but some of them yeah, I never hear about it. I was born in 1980, and I never hear about the mass shootings from the 70s. And I don't hear much about the Vietnam veterans, except for in movies saying, you know, there used to be Vietnam veterans that were homeless all over the place, angry, doing things. But it's very, it's not, it's been brushed under the rug, so to speak, for our generation. It, it sure has. And the Vietnam veterans were so demonized and rejected by the society and by the protest movement that um, it's actually really distressing to hear you say that for your generation, that history has been brushed under the rug because uh, it was a very difficult and contentious history with extreme violence, not only in Vietnam, but here on the American streets, including with me. Because um, I was very active in the protest movement on the front lines and I was severely threatened with violence as a protester a number of times, including 
a National Guardsman who had his bayonet right against my heart, ordering me to get off the streets in Washington um, when everything was peaceful and it was a peaceful demonstration. And the, the national, like the, the violence we're experiencing today, the military was called in when they shouldn't have been and turned a peaceful demonstration violent by their overreaction to it. So I experienced that during the 60s and protesting the Vietnam War. We have it again on our streets now, which is something that's really upsetting us old folks, seeing history repeating for you in the country uh, with things that we've been trying to address our whole lives. Anyway, part of my own journey was not having had to serve. I do believe in universal service of some kind, and I believe, as you do, in the absolute necessity of rites of passage, where we, go, we take on significant ordeals, have to give significant service, have to transition with help and guidance, ideally, from boys and girls to men and women. And military service has traditionally been a rite of passage for, for millennia for almost all cultures of all times and places for the last 5,000 years, since the patriarchy has been dominant. Uh, I didn't have to serve, and the Vietnam era was so contentious that though I was against the war, I still felt something missing in me, that I didn't give service to the country. I didn't, I didn't have the opportunity to give life affirming life-giving service and uh the people who went to vietnam came back wrecked whereas most of us in my generation got a free pass didn't have to do anything didn't have to suffer anything and that's wrong we now have the phrase moral injury we didn't have it back then but i'm talking about a moral injury to the entire nation by an immoral war by breaking the generation into pieces by only pressuring some people and largely minorities to serve and by allowing most of us to get through without having to do anything or give anything or, or contribute anything to the well-being of the, the country or evolve ourselves into people who serve and who give adults. So ah, beginning in the mid-1970s when I moved to this uh, rural part of New York State, uh, veterans started to come into my practice. And I really didn't know what I was doing. PTSD was not even a diagnosis until 1980. I, so I didn't think I knew what I was doing, but nobody knew what they were doing. Nobody was treating uh, these young men. And it was so clear that the war had wrecked them and they were suffering from what happened in the war and what happened on homecoming. That homecoming was so rejecting and violent and unfriendly and judgmental. And we've heard the stories of veterans being spit on. Well, they, they, many were and even worse than that. Um, <clears throat> so I never turned against them for the war. And I always thought of them as, as I said, like the Vietnamese, as victims of the war also, and that they need and deserve a proper homecoming and the best help they could get. And uh, so, and for me, 
I was able to fulfill that earlier goal of um, if I have to serve, I could serve as a medic. So I evolved the identity of being becoming the best home front medic I could possibly be. And a medic for the, indiv- for the invisible wounds, PTSD and now what we call moral injury, which has only, only been labeled in about the last decade. Uh, I was also following a family legacy because my, my godfather, my mother's only sibling, was a combat medic at the Battle of the Bulge. And uh, he survived it, but he was lost behind enemy lines, MIA, for two months. Yeah. And he came back really wrecked. He had lifelong shell shock. I mean, he could barely speak a coherent sentence. He lived into his 80s, but, 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 but he talked like this and he shook like this all the time. So he was my godfather. That energy penetrated me. That history penetrated me. And we don't know this. We don't know his stories. I've spent my most of my adult life digging up his combat history, and I finally have it. So I know what happened to him, and that was very important for completion and closure with him for me and honoring my godfather and my family. What it sounds like I'm hearing in you is the the term that we hear so often, at least I do, and I'm sure some circles of my listeners would hear this this idea of ancestral healing. The idea that the wound happened some either with a father, grandfather, great grandfather, and then it just that same wound just continues to travel down the family line as more and more traumas are inflicted on the the young underneath. And I definitely was on the receiving end of a lot of trauma from my ancestors. And I mean, who could really blame them? I mean, they escaped Russia in 1917 when people were being like tortured, raped, beaten in the streets. And, you know, my father's side was German Jew, which they'd never hear about. I never heard anything about that. I didn't even find out his father was Jewish until I was like 30 years old. I didn't even see my father much, much. Yeah, I didn't see my father. I mean, I've only ever had a few conversations with him and my, my, and all of my recollection, uh, recollection. So, uh, you know, I mean, I saw him till I was 10, but I so frequently, he was, he was absent at all times. Uh, I, he would essentially pick me up for the weekend, uh, have me stay with whatever girlfriend he was kind of seeing at that time. And eventually my stepmother, uh, who we also met at a bar from what I understand, I don't really know. I can't really verify that so well, but, uh, and essentially he would just drink, you know, all day. And, uh, and that's just what he did. He was either drinking or sleeping and he like ran a company somehow and, and eventually he lost all of that. But, uh, yeah, again, it's being at the, uh, you know, the receiving end of all of these traumas, all of the things that have happened, uh, to our ancestors are essentially experienced somatically in our body. And they, they've, they've done epigenetic studies on this, uh, in modern science and see that, you know, this is visually perceptible in, you know, uh, in, uh, gene expression and, you know, epigenetics. So I, I'm not an expert at that by any means, but it is, you could, the materialists would be happy to know that you could actually see that this is present. It's not somebody just making up, oh, you know, I feel this feeling because it traveled down my father or whatever. These are real wounds that are happening in real time for real people here in 2020. Yeah, absolutely correct. And if the materialists need to see your and my brain scans, we can prove to them that it really embeds in the body and in the material substance of life that we carry, that we are. 
So you're absolutely right. Uh, we share that background, um, that epigenetic background. My ancestors are also from Russian, uh, Russian and Polish and uh, Austria-Hungary Jews. And I, so I know I'm carrying things from way back. Uh, I know I'm carrying imprint from the Holocaust. One of my great uncles died in the concentration camps. Uh, he's the, the one who got left behind in Russia when the rest of the family got here. Um, but even more than that, let's, uh, for our audience's sake, and uh, let's emphasize that epigenetic trauma is real and it goes through the generations. And it's not just modern science that knows and proves this, but remember um, in the Bible, uh, one of the commandments, I think is the second commandment, uh, I am the Lord thy God that shall have no other God before me. For the Lord thy God is a jealous God who visits the sins of the fathers upon the children unto the third and the fourth generations. The Bible in, in that statement and many others tells us that the traumas go through the generations and what fathers do in one generation severely impacts the children and grandchildren and great grandchildren down the road. The Native American, uh, our Native American brothers and sisters have a very similar teaching when they say, think about the impact on seven generations of everything you do. So we really are that tightly woven a web of humanity and nature and whatever we do either affects the web, either for good or ill. And certainly trauma goes down through the web. And trauma is profoundly our concern today because every one of us is being traumatized every single day by everything that's going on in the news. And it's not just the virus and if somebody has it or the healthcare workers, but when we are lied to by leadership, that's trauma. When we are not cared for by the system that is supposed to be taking care of all of us, that's traumatic. When Things that when facts are be are called alternative facts or fake news, and we don't even know what reality is anymore, that is profoundly traumatizing. And we don't even know how to locate ourselves in the world and with each other. So we're all being traumatized every day. And if we look at history and what's going on today, I would say the trauma is the universal human wound. We all have it. Human history has given it to all of us. We are all carrying epigenetic trauma. We are all broken off from the whole, and we all need to explore and reconcile and heal these broken parts of ourselves and each other and our system uh, to the greatest degree possible. So trauma, actually, there's a lot of advantages and gifts in it. And one of them is that it has the opportunity or we have the opportunity with trauma to look at deep wounding and achieve deep healing and unification again so one of the many ways that i work with veterans is that uh i i bring not just vietnam veterans now but um i brought veterans of the recent wars too uh, every year since 2000 i've been going back to vietnam with veterans or other survivors uh widows surviving children, Amerasian youth who were born of that war, but didn't reconcile with both countries or lost one parent. Uh, and 
These people carry severe trauma and bringing them back together in Vietnam with the Vietnamese uh, and everybody telling their stories and witnessing each other's stories and doing ritual to bring oneness where there's brokenness is extraordinary, extraordinarily heal healing and transformative. Yeah, how did he get in here? Back to Asclepius. <laughs> how did he get in here? All right, so I was working with our Vietnam veteran. By now, you're right, I've worked with veterans uh, from, I would probably say just about every American war, both well-known and small and secret, from the Spanish Civil War all the way to the present. I've worked with lots of uh, people in special operations and special forces. So I'm sorry to say that I know a lot about all the secret dirty wars that we practice all over the country that the public doesn't know about. Um, and so, well, in part, the Viet working with the Vietnam veterans brought me back into unity in my generation, the broken parts of my generation. It also initiated me into the world of warriors and warriorhood as America practices it and into the American military establishment. Uh, who used my work. So it's really quite extraordinary that a, an old uh, peace activist hippie has become a, a beloved companion and healer for our military. <laughs> yeah, I think right now we're dealing with a time too where, uh, you know, you're, we're, we're in the time now that George Floyd happened maybe three weeks ago and the protests are out here happening. And I, I see a lot of people, you know, and I don't know, I, again, we're in this place where I don't know what true is or what isn't. Is it real fake? Is it some fake video that what's happening with the protests or are the protests, what, what we're seeing actually happening or, you know, I mean, it's just, you know, there's no ground and, uh, it's so difficult. And then, you know, if you say, well, I don't, I don't even know, you have to know, you know, and it's like, well, how do I know when I don't know, but I do know, but I don't know. And it's just, it's this, I just delete, I, I, I got so lost in it that I just deleted the fa my Facebook app and I just don't get on. And I just trust that, you know, my, my center is basically what's happening on in my, my, in my community directly around me. And my community is pretty diverse. So, you know, I have some idea of, what people think is ha actually happening. But, uh, you know, some of the pictures I did see before I ended up deleting my Facebook app uh, is I saw people, you know, like flipping off police and, you know, screaming at them or whatever uh, as this idea that there's these things called police or these this group called police and all of them are bad and they're like part of some, you know, uh, evil hegemony or something and, you know, they're out to just torture and maim and, like these, I don't know, it's this, you know, it's people that are oppressed that are wanting to direct it somewhere and they just probably, in my opinion, don't know exactly where to put it and the police seem like a pretty good candidate for, for the abuse. But it sounds a little bit like what you had said about the Vietnam veterans returning and people spitting on them or flipping them off or saying you're a murderer and all of that. But at the same time, they're like, well, shit, you know, I, I had to go to this war uh, either because I got drafted or because I needed money and like I grew up poor and I was uneducated and I don't really know. And I think a lot of the police force is probably traumatized themselves and maybe have been bullied in school. This is the common story, at least as far as I've heard, is that police are bullied, you know, and then they be, they want to get some power because they feel powerless. So then they become a cop, which is probably not the best thing for them to do before working with their trauma. And then they go out and afflict abuse onto, you know, whomever may have abused them. 
and uh, that may end up on you know black people in our country, uh, or it might end up on Mexicans or you know people in you know <laughs> other poor socioeconomic uh, environments, and just a way to bully, and it might attract people that are completely cut off from their empathic nature and get their rocks off by by doing that. But I but I think mostly my guess is that it's probably not fully sociopathic people or psychopathic people that are police officers, probably traumatized people uh, that are uh, need help maybe just as much as everybody else. I, I don't know. I, I want to see what you think about that. No, that that's uh, very accurate. Um, I don't know. It, I don't care how our listeners feel about this. I'm going to say a truth that I have experienced. Oh, uh, as a peace activist and as a liberal and a radical, I still have very deep and profound and loving and respectful relations with our military and our police. I have met so many extraordinarily moral and beautiful people in our military and in, in our first responder community. It's really wrong to demonize them. We have to look for at individuals and we have to, you're right, they are in, they're in a trauma-inducing environment all the time. Many of them do have trauma histories. Very many, it varies uh, in different forces, of course, but in some forces, as many as 75% of the police force will be veterans, combat veterans. So they all already have PTSD. The military promises <clears throat> that we're going to give you job training that's going to be transferable to a good job in the public sector when you get out. Well, there are very, very few that are, but be, being a first responder is one of them. And so military veterans do gravitate toward, uh, toward police force, fire department, conservation officers. Uh, so yeah, those forces are overloaded with people from challenged backgrounds who have been traumatized and many have been through the military and many have been in combat. And uh, those skills that they learned are supposed to be useful in the force. But uh, overgeneralizing, there isn't enough training and careful um, guidance for how to use the military skills that you learned in a safe and facilitative way in the public. And what to do when there isn't a hammer and nail situation? Like, what do you do when you're running into somebody on the streets with a mental illness and you say, lie down on the ground, and they don't lie down on the ground because they're fucking terrified. So their body just goes into some crazy flight or fight response and they're flopping around or fighting you off because they really might not be able to help it, either because they're, they have a trauma response to that or they're on drugs because the only way they could mask and function in the world is to be on drugs. And instead of knowing what to do in that situation, the police are probably just not trained in that. And they go, holy shit, here's a person bigger than me in some cases or really angry looking or, you know, I feel terrified, you know, you know, and then they end up harming that person or worse, killing that person. And I, I don't think it stops there. I mean, you know, I, I hear a lot of people really up in arms about a murder that occurred, and it it was a murder. But I also think, and again, it could be, people could be talking about it, and I haven't looked. But uh, they're also when people are arrested and then they're put in prison, oftentimes they're murdered there. So uh, 
the murder, just because someone's not murdered on the street, someone being thrown into prison is, for a lot of people, a death sentence. Maybe not immediately, but it leads to they might not die in prison. A friend of mine uh, committed suicide about a year ago. Good friend of mine. He actually worked with me for a while, helped me start the dance community in Utah. And he went to prison for a long time and uh, for having a controlled substance on him. And he came from a traumatized background. And he never really got to work with that because he pretty much took care of his whole entire family and his extended family, just worked his ass off and just kind of had to, felt he had to mask it. He didn't, but he felt like he had to. And he ended up killing himself. And so like, did the murder even happen right away? You know, the murder in my, in, in my case, or as, as I would see it, is uh, uh, the word that comes up to, uh, for that is, uh, gosh, what is that word that you had written? And there was the woman and she was crying uh, the cr- anathema. Anathema. The whole system anathema. is anathema. It's just disconnected from why it's even there to begin with. Uh, maybe you could touch on anathema because the way you wrote that was so powerful. Well, I'll touch on that. That will bring us to Asclepius. <laughs> That's a, it's a perfect tie-in. Yes. Okay. So I'll get to anathema. I was working with the Vietnam veterans at the beginning of my career, as I said, so from my mid-20s into my mid-30s, I was giving the best psychotherapy I knew how to give at the time. There was very little research. Very few people were working with veterans. Uh, They were really misunderstood and misdiagnosed then. They still are now. And... What I was learning from them about the wounds of war and and abusive, neglectful homecoming was so severe, so severe that I determined that uh, ordinary psychotherapy isn't enough. It isn't deep enough. It doesn't go far enough. I need to study the worldwide warrior tradition to learn everything I could about how other cultures from other times and places brought their warriors home. Because since humanity has been at war for 5,000 years and somehow we're still here, um, there must have been other more functional and successful uh, and community-based ways of uh, bringing warriors home after combat than what we're practicing here. So um, Greece also brought me to warriorhood because I read the Iliad when I was 10 years old. And I fell in love with the Greek tradition and Greek mythology. And I always knew that, and I studied it my whole life. So I always knew that they had the ancient citizen warrior tradition. So um, in 1987, I went on a solo pilgrimage to Greece to research this very question. What was the citizen warrior tradition of ancient Greece like? How did they bring their warriors home? How did they integrate them? What do we have to learn from this? I learned much about warriorhood from the Iliad and from the other Greek sources. Well, what about the end of warriorhood? What about healing warriorhood? Uh, That's not so obvious, and we don't have texts like that. So I wanted to go to Greece to to study this. Okay, so um, this was 1987, and I had many breakthrough experiences. I was 36 at the time, and I was midlife is ripe for the portals opening up and uh, destroying everything you thought you knew and and, um, initiating you into a new world and a new way of life. That happened for me on that trip. And some of what happened is what introduced me to Asclepius and initiated me on this healing journey 
and tied it together with the warriors. Uh, there, uh, the principal heat sanctuary of Asclepius was called Epidavros, um, spelled Epidaurus in English. Uh, for people who might be familiar with that, but it's pronounced Epidavros. Uh, there were over 320 extensive holistic healing sanctuaries in this tradition all over the Mediterranean world. And Epidavros was the central one, the main sanctuary from which all of the healing wisdom radiated. Epidavros has a beautiful, intact, 14,000-seat ancient theater. And every summer, they have an ancient theater festival there. Uh, yeah, wow. So uh, in 1987, then uh, I arrived there for the opening night of the ancient theater festival for that season. And the play being performed by torchlight in that ancient theater, no mechanical anything, just the actors and, and torches, uh, that the play was The Trojan Women, which is probably certainly one of the greatest anti-war plays ever written. It was written by Euripides, one of the three great Greek tra uh, tragedians. Remember Aeschylus, Sophocles, Euripides. All three of them were combat veterans. Aeschylus was at Marathon, helped save Western civilization. His brother was killed there. Sophocles and Euripides were both elected generals in the Athenian army. The Athenian army elected the officers they wanted to follow. They weren't appointed because it has to come from the soldiers who they believe in and who they want and are willing to follow. So Euripides uh, was elected a general. He was so upset during the Peloponnesian War at atrocities that his beloved Athens had committed not against the Spartans. Athens was so frustrated that they were losing against the Spartans that they went against some innocent, neutral city-states and islands, and they destroyed those. And Euripides... Gosh, that sounds familiar. Yeah, exactly. Right? And Euripides was screaming in anguish over that, so he wrote The Trojan Women, which is... Uh, it, the, the hero, uh, the, the protagonists are the Trojan women themselves, all the women who are being taken away into slavery after Troy is destroyed. So we see everything about war damage. All the men are killed. Our husbands, our fathers, our sons are killed. Our, our families are being taken up, apart. Our city is being destroyed and we're being trucked off into slavery and we'll never see each other again all of the war wounds and the most incredibly piercing um, poetry. I was in the front row. It was a blessing right in front of the Trojan women while they were screaming their anguish. And Hecuba is the name of the queen of Troy. So she's the leader of the Trojan women in their chorus. And she has all of these losses. Her father's killed, her sons are killed, she's her grandsons are being killed. She's being taken, a queen being taken off as a slave. She cries from the pit of her stomach. And it was a sound, I swear, I'd never heard a human being make before. But she screamed, anathema, 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 from her core. Anathema is how we pronounce it, anathema, 
against the theme, against the order, against the way of life, against the Tao, we spiritual people might say. That was the theme of the play, showing how war profoundly disorders everything about us. Body, mind, heart, spirit, culture, society, relationships, everything. That turned me inside out. Um, I felt like I received some of the answers that I was looking for for understanding combat veterans, that they had experienced anathema. And anathema is a moral inversion where like we're confused today, good becomes evil and evil becomes good and right becomes wrong and I don't know what's real. And I'm told to do things that are horrible. An Iraq veteran I've worked with said, we don't know, need your complicated psychological definitions of PTSD and moral injury. I'll tell you what it is. PTSD is what happens when your head tells you to do what your heart tells you is wrong. The end. And he's right. Sounds like our whole economic capitalistic system. Yeah, exactly. And that's what the warriors know when they wake up. Oh, I was a mercenary for our economic capitalistic system. I was not a real warrior practicing the real warrior values of preservation and protection. But I became an aggressor and an agent of the capitalist system. That's why I went to Vietnam. That's why I went to Grenada. That's why I went to Haiti. That's why I... We go everywhere. It's probably a lot how the police are as well. It's that blue line keeping keeping the people that are really without and don't have shit and are barely hanging on uh, from just uprising with pitchforks. I remember there was a quote in uh, one of uh, an economist that I really enjoy reading, uh, uh, Michael, gosh, Michael Hudson, and he talks about how uh, when the bank bailout happened, Obama said, don't worry, I'm not going to let the uprising of the people with the pitchforks come out and get you all. And then the bailout happened. You know what I mean? And uh, the real the real problem is this entire systemic nature that allows uh, a misdistribution of, of wealth and resources to happen. And, uh, and I think that the police, for the most part, I don't know many rich, wealthy police officers that go to become a police officer because they're just have a bunch of money and tons of power. And they're like, you know what, what I want to do is, you know, take people to jail all day. You know, uh, I don't, I don't think a lot of people that are in the police force, I think that they're also, uh, the victims of this bigger systemic issue. Uh, yeah. And I, and I could hear, uh, I could hear, you know, uh, George Floyd's family or mother maybe screaming at looking at that video, maybe a lot of people screaming anathema as they watch that video of someone, a man dying there while people are like, hey, stop, stop doing that. Don't, don't do that. But nobody could push the cop off and nobody does. Nobody knows what to do. They're like watching anathema happen, but it's almost like we're so desensitized with all of these movies and all of these things. You're just like, what do they know? Do, do they know something I don't know? What was this, what is this, what's happening? Is this even real life? Is this staged? You know, and you hear, and, and that's kind of the response to this whole thing is nobody. It's almost like the world has become so profane that we don't even know what profanity is or what sacredness is. So I think we're tapping into the sacred or the mystical uh, now, the sacred time as it's finding you in Asclepius. Uh, yes, and. We are and we need to, and that's also when the healing energies that we know as Asclepius can come back to us and talk about that as well.
Um, so, uh, well, so back to anathema and when I first heard it and I understood that that is the core moral wound that our warriors are, and all warriors suffer from. And then I asked, well, why is this healing, why is the theater in this healing sanctuary? I didn't know anything about Asclepius at that time, 1987. Uh, and so then I began research. And you were already a therapist. You were already a psycho. Yes. You already had your master's in psychotherapy. And you still didn't know about Asclepius. Yeah, well, he's uh, Asclepius is almost not mentioned in any of the mythology books. Everybody's read Edith Hamilton's wonderful collection of mythology. There's about two sentences on Asclepius in there and almost nothing on dreams. Um, I, I've surveyed all of the leading books uh, on um, Greek mythology, and Asclepius is hardly mentioned. In Freud's famous breakthrough book, The Interpretation of Dreams, Asclepius gets one small footnote that says, uh, the footnote says something like, the Greeks knew dreams could be diagnostic and prescriptive because they had the tradition of Asclepius that showed them that. That's all. Not how to work with them. And you would think that that would mean that he probably wasn't that important in Greek times. Like That's you what you think that there would be right. this, based on all of that information, it's like, how did, how did this God fall into obscurity? That's what's so interesting and troubling because you're right. He was very popular in Greek times. And as Christianity went to war against the pagan gods and suppress them and destroy their temples one after the other after the other. Asclepius, in fact, was the last remaining Greek deity to be worshipped by the people. And as the others were wiped out and reduced, Asclepius took on more and more attributes of the other gods. So by about 400 AD, when the others were gone, the people still worshipping Asclepius didn't only say he's the healer, but they also said he's the savior and he's the king of the universe. So he took the place of, well, in the Judeo-Christian tradition, he took the attributes of both Yahweh and Jesus. He was the, the uh, he was the, the chief God and he was the saving God. Or in the Greek tradition, he took the attributes of, uh, of, of, um, of Zeus, and, well, we'd have to break it up, but he took the, the savior aspects uh, and the rescuing aspects of the other gods who protect civilization, not just heal the individuals. So it's really strange and interesting that the most popular and longest living of the Greek pagan deities was nearly wiped out of history. And almost nobody knows about him, comments on him, writes about him. The Jungian tradition didn't even know about him. And here's the story, yeah. And I'll, here's the story. Of, here's the story of how that tradition discovered it. Right? The way it came to me, as I shared, was looking for pathways for healing my combat veterans. I went to Greece, saw the play, was exposed to Asclepius, and then began researching and immersing in the entire tradition. What happened in the Jungian tradition was this. Well, Jung knew about Asclepius and wrote about him a little bit. Uh, Asclepius also has this uh, dwarf god helper, Telesphoros, um, who is, he's a dwarf and he's a fertility god. On the front, he's just this funny little man with a hood, turn him around and in the back, 
he's he's a phallus. So he's a, a fertility god and the inner child and the trickster and the dwarf and the magical bringer of dreams, uh, Jung said. And Jung actually prayed to Lesphorus and, and carved a stone statue of him in his yard, but didn't use the Asclepian tradition very much. Okay, Jung's direct uh, disciple and follower, uh, Meyer, C.F. Meyer, who became the leader of, because of Asclepius, he became the next director of the Jung Institute in Zurich. That's another story. But Meyer had a patient who came in to him and said, Doctor, I had the strangest dream this week. Well, what is it, my dear? It was only one, uh, was only one sentence without any images, and I have no idea what it means. What's the sentence that you dreamed? What I dreamed, she said, was this. Out of the darkness, a voice said, the greatest thing he ever created was a pedivros. What's a pedivros? What does this mean, doctor? Well, Meyer didn't know, so he went and researched it, and then he learned about the Asclepian tradition, and then he studied it and followed it and applied it to the way we do psychotherapy. And he learned about incubation. Uh, he wrote an important early book called um, Ancient, Incu Ancient Incubation and Modern Psychotherapy. Ancient Incubation and Modern Psychotherapy. And Meyer determined that what we're doing in psychotherapy is long, slow, hour-by-hour -hour dream incubation. And that's Jung's goal also. Jung said, and I practice this and I believe it, and I, I don't know, but I suspect you would subscribe that Jung said, my goal in psychotherapy is not to cure neurosis. My goal is to lead people to an experience of the numinous. And if they can break through and, and, and feel the presence of the divine, then the neurosis clears it up by itself. Everything gets corrected and realigned correctly internally. So Meyer saw that what we're doing in depth psychotherapy of the Jungian style, you're working with dreams, trying to foster dreams, trying to get people to travel really deeply into the collective unconscious, was what the Escapian sanctuaries tried to do, but quickly and radically and intensively. So instead of one hour a week for years and years and years, you go into the Asclepian Sanctuary for a few days, a few weeks, a few months, and you stay there for radical ritual and transformational experience to foster the breakthrough to the archetypal, to the spiritual. And that tradition lasted um, from about... Uh, 2,000 years, we have records of it over 2,000 years, and we have several thousand testimonies of dream healings that happened uh, in this tradition through Asclepian healing work. So I studied all that. So when you say healing has happened, what type of healing happens like uh, in, in, in a dream? And how does this I know the answer to this, but I could imagine if I'm listening to this, I'm like, okay, wait a second. So there's, there's this God from Greece that 
you know, look, seems like Jesus that then kind of caught, caught all the projection of all the other gods when the pagan gods got wiped out by Christianity. And now we live in kind of a Christian era because it says it on the back of our money. But at the same time, we're really don't really believe that either. We really believe that we're an accidental nothing that happened on a rock, uh, never, uh, nowhere. And uh, somehow we unfolded from that and uh, we're all just machine robots kind of going around doing whatever until we die, trying to extract whatever we can from that. And instead of God, we call that whole thing the universe. And uh, we make prayers to the universe in the forms of law of attraction. And, you know, uh, that's where we're at. So what does this Asclepius have to do with anything? And if he was really providing deep healing through dream sanctuaries and all of, you know, Jungian and Freudian therapy was all really striving towards the deep dream incubation healings that happened at these Asclepions. Where in the hell have these Asclepions gone? Why did they disappear? And why don't, why don't we just go to an Asclepion now? I'm going to tell another story, if I may, that's going to help put all of this together and answer some of your really important questions. Uh, and I'm going to... Uh, this can tie together the work with uh, war trauma and PTSD uh, with modern patients seeking healing uh, in ways that they can't find healing uh, in, in other, any other forms. It'll put it all together. And then we can ask those questions and perhaps in a more didactic way. <clears throat> okay. This is how it works and can work for us today. Uh, I want to tell a story of the, I have permission to share this story and uh, the person who experienced it has written about it in his own book as well. So it's out there for the public. So I guess I can recommend his book. All right. I recommend a book by a Vietnam veteran named John Fisher. His book is called the war after the war. And it's not about his war experiences. It's about his long, complicated struggle to come home. And this experience that we shared that is in the center of his healing and addresses the very questions you're asking about, who's the Sclepius? What relevance does it have for us today? Why should we believe in and practice any of this stuff? Yeah, well, I'm busy enough already. I don't need another thing to do. It's amazing I'm able to listen to this podcast, right? I could picture a lot of people feeling completely overwhelmed. Like, do, is this just another untrue thing? You know, some new gimmick, you know? Yep, yep, yep. And I don't blame them because we're bombarded with gimmicks and fads all the time. And this week's healing is next week's fantasy. And the next week after, it's a lie. All right. John contacted me because, well, he was recommended to me by another colleague of ours, but uh, he had been through lots of therapy, traditional psychotherapy for PTSD. He had written, actually he'd written a couple of books, uh, war novels, that were really thinly disguised testimonies of his own experience. Uh, he became a chiropractor, so he was a professional, and he did his phys physical healing work, and he was healing other people. And he said, I did everything right, and I did all the hard healing work and everything that our society um, offers. I should have been okay, but I wasn't okay. He was divorced a couple of times. He was alienated from his kids. And the way he described it, the key, the worst thing that bothered him, were, in his own words, the light was out inside. I didn't feel, I felt dead. I was just doing, and many, many P 
PTSD survivors describe this. I'm doing what I know is right with my head, but I don't feel it inside. Yeah, I used to I used to have this same problem. And in order I, I wanted to do things and I couldn't even get myself to do them. And then I found this magical pill called Oxycontin. And it would allow at first alcohol would work and then Xanax, but I got too tired. So Xanax cigarettes and caffeine. And then eventually Oxycontin kind of like it does the things that all of those do combined and just gets straight to the point. Like, okay, now I could get everything done. So I know that feeling very firsthand and very well. Uh, yeah, yeah. You do, right. Okay. Well, John was sick of that feeling and he really was aching for something that will work and break through and, and bring him home. So he contacted me. Uh, we talked and consulted and then I invited him to come on a journey, a uh, dream healing journey to Greece with me and a Sclepian healing journey. Uh, he came and I want to tell his healing story. There were... I, I take small groups like 8, 10, 12 people so we can do really intensive and personal work and really get to know each other. So we had about 10 people uh, on that journey. Uh, there was one other combat veteran, um, but I'm focusing on John. We were in Athens. Our third day in Athens, or for our third day, I told John, this today is for you. We're going to a place that's a warrior sanctuary. It was in ancient times, and we're going to start doing healing ritual, especially for you there. We went to a place, uh, not, not many people go there. It's not far from the Acropolis, but it's a little off the beaten path, and it's not well known. Not that many people go there. It's called Keramikos. Uh, our word ceramics comes from there because it's the Karamikos River, and that was the right behind the old city of walls. That's where the the, the potters' studios and homes were. This day. that's where they got their good mud. Right outside the city walls was the Athens ancient warrior cemetery, the equivalent of our Arlington. A lot of famous as well as unknown warriors are buried there now so i told john where we were going we walked there we got to the site and before we could even walk in john started to tremble in terror and he said i don't know what's wrong i don't know why i can't go in but i can't go in i can't go in i can't go in why not he said, i don't know this is just an ancient cemetery but i feel worse now here than i do even at the vietnam wall in washington so the whole group surrounded him and supported him. Bless them, the, uh, the, the, the guards, the attendants of the sanctuary saw that he was having trouble and they invited him into their office and they sat him down and they got him cold water and they helped him calm down. So the Greeks got involved in his healing immediately, even not even being able to speak his language. We come when John was ready, then we did a slow, sacred procession through the warrior cemetery with him in the lead. We're walking through the tombstones, and he chose one, a warrior's tombstone, to sit against. And he sat with his back to it and in prayer, and he was praying very, very deeply for relief from his anguish. The group surrounded him. Some people were doing therapeutic touch. Some people were doing Reiki. Some people were doing prayer. Some people were just 
watching respectfully, but it was all in John's service. He's sitting against the tombstone in anguish, tears, his face twisted in pain. And then suddenly everything changed. He just, his eyes lit up and his face smiled and he threw his arms up and he said, uh, something just happened. I don't know what just happened, but the light just came on. Like a lightning bolt went into my heart and into my body and I'm alive again. Okay. We didn't stop there. We just said, that's great. That's amazing. Hold on to it. Tell us when you're ready to move on. So with this changed expression, we continued our procession through the warrior cemetery. We came to the old city gates, exactly the spot where Pericles, the leader of Athens during the Peloponnesian War, who also built the Parthenon. This is the very spot Pericles gave his famous funeral oration of the war dead during after the first year of the Peloponnesian War. I recited part of Pericles' speech about warriors' duty to preserve and protect the ideals of their civilization, not to be aggressors, not to be abusers, not to be violent, but to be protectors of what is deepest and most precious and important to that civilization. Then I invited John. You stand where Pericles stood. I feel this. John, you stand where Pericles stood and you give us your oration right here, right now. John spoke for about 20 minutes. He told part of his war story. He told the difficulties of homecoming. He told how much, how he had lost his soul and he was on this journey seeking his soul again. And I'll never forget the last thing he said when he finished his speech. In Pericles' footsteps, he said, and see, this changes everything. From now on and forevermore, I am no longer a Vietnam veteran. From now on, I am a spiritual warrior whose service was in Vietnam. And I will serve as a spiritual warrior all my days. And it was a mistake that they sent me to Vietnam. That war was wrong, but being a spiritual warrior is right. And I have to make it right and good and do right with it from now on. Okay. That was the first half of John's healing. Later, we went to the island of Kos, that's K-O-S. That was the home island of Hippocrates, whom we mentioned earlier, founder of scientific medicine, but son and grandson of Asclepian priests. And there's a huge old Asclepian sanctuary on Kos. It's very beautiful, very beautiful. It was three tiers. It lasted for about 800 years. It was used during both Greek and Roman times. We went there. We spent the day there. I, we taught and studied the Asclepian tradition. We did prayer and meditation there. But then we went back to our hotel. And that night in our hotel, we set up Asclepian dream chambers, which were called, in the ancient times, they were called Abaton, Abaton, which meant uh, the place never to be transgressed. Use it for nothing else but seeking spiritual connection through dreaming and visioning. And I know you hope. So that's what, to not be trodden, that's what that means, exactly, right? Exactly, right. Not be trodden yes. on. 
Hmm. I wondered what that meant. I, I'm glad you helped me with that distinction. That was one of my yep. questions. Right. So do not do not tread here in any profane way. Nothing passes here but the sacred. So we created, um, we, we rented some of the bedrooms in the hotel that were quiet and private and in a corner where we wouldn't be disturbed. And we created abatons for the members of the group who wanted to incubate. And incubation was the term used in ancient times for this process of dream questing for a con direct connection to healing powers represented by Asclepius and the other mythological connections. So um, we put John and the other dreamers to sleep uh, with prayer and ritual and all night long, all night long, John had hideous combat nightmares. He'd have a nightmare, he'd wake up sweating or crying or trembling or screaming. We always have attendants present. Uh, the, uh, me or the other attendants calmed him down and took care of him, got him whatever he needed, and asked him, are you done? Do you want to stop? He always said, no, I need to go back. I'm not done. Uh, that was a horrible dream. You want to talk about it? No, I need to keep dreaming. I need to go back. He kept going back into the dream world and having another nightmare, after, night after, uh, hour after hour, all night long, until when dawn came and the beautiful sun rose up over the Turkish coastline and came into our windows, John sat up again, like in the cemetery, uh, with this beatific smile, and he said, I'm done. It's over. What do you mean, John? What's, what's over? He said, it's all over. I'm done. I'm empty. The, the combat nightmares and the curse are, is out of me. Okay. We hope so. Let's find out. And, you know, we talked about the nightmares, and we did dream work to process them. Uh, this is 2000. Uh, so... This was eight years ago, and John hasn't had a single combat nightmare since then. Wow, that's incredible. And it's incredible, yes. And he's been back to Vietnam a number of times, and he leads his own journeys back to Vietnam now. And he's led, as a chiropractor, he's led medical teams to Vietnam to give healing to the Vietnamese victims of the war. And by the way, he also met his wife in that that group in Greece. So they, they're happily married and third time's a charm. They're happily married and this one is working. And yeah, because he's, he's not so trauma. He's not stuck in the trauma now. Too. Yeah. Probably yeah. helping his relationship. Big time. Yeah. Yes. And he's reconciled with all of his children from previous marriages who were alienated because he had become a monster from the PTSD. Totally. It's hard to, it's hard to separate the the victim from the perpetrator to see that in that person that is such a monster that they are themselves a victim. It's very difficult to see that and have compassion for, for those, for those people, especially when they're demonstrating all of this. It's so beautiful that he was able to have this experience with you in such a safe environment. Uh, I know a lot of people are seeking healing by any means necessary. I mean, for me, addicted to opiates and not being able, being addicted to alcohol ever since I was a child. I mean, I, I mean, Debatably, when I was born, I was addicted to alcohol. My mom drank every day when, 
when she was pregnant, her doctor said, yeah, you know, don't change. It's not even her fault. She, they, she was just, she went to the doctor and she took it as his word as sacrosanct. And he says, yeah, just drink a couple glasses of wine a night. That's fine. Just don't change anything. Keep smoking too. It'll cause the baby too much stress if you change. So she drank and smoked the whole time, which I know I have a lot of friends. Their parents did crack the whole time they were pregnant and were like living in all sorts of crazy situations. So, so for me, you know, yeah, for me, I, you know, I guess I was probably, I mean, likely born addicted to alcohol and cigarettes. So, you know, I've always struggled with that, you know, and, uh, and for me, what was the most liberating time? Cause I just white knuckled it for many years and I felt like a light was off for sure. And maybe even after this, I did, but I took a, a route from Africa called a boga. I don't know if you've, I think you've heard of it. I think I'd mentioned it to you when we'd spoken before. And essentially it takes you through this dream journey, uh, and, and you're able to like remember it and go through all of these things. My experience, I didn't experience a lot of the trauma or anything else because I don't think I took it with that intention and I didn't have like the right container. Uh, but I did experience the numinous. Uh, so I, I definitely I took it in the whole time I thought, holy shit, if everyone that was listening to, you know, all of the scientific reductionism, religion, you know, scienti- scientism uh, as, as, as truth... Uh, were to take this, they would immediately not believe that anymore. I don't know what the hell I believe now, except for the fact that I don't know anything. I don't know, you know, it was humbling in a good way. Uh, You know, humbling without shame in in a way. Um, And I found out that the term for what iboga is, it's what's called a uh, onerogen or an oniophrenic. It's not a psychedelic, it's an oniophrenic. Uh, and that term actually means dream maker. Uh, it right. makes dreams. Onera is dream in Greek. Mm-hmm. That's right. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so it's. I, I feel like the healing, the secret to healing, so many of the conditions. Now, granted, you might break a leg, and maybe you know, dream healing might not be the best thing for that. Or you might be too far gone with a disease, and you know, it's about you know hospice. But even even then, it's debatable of whether dreaming is is. I read a book recently called "Death Is But a Dream," uh, written by an end of care uh, medical doctor who talks about how in the late stages of life. Uh, his patients and patients that he's worked with, they go through a process of making sense of the world, making sense of their life, communicating with the dead. He could see that when they're, he knows when they're going to die because he sees that they're communicating with beings that are no longer alive in the chronos, in the time is measure time, and they're communicating them in the kairos, in this moment now where they're present. And then you know, all of their loved ones are freaked out by this because they're free. They're scared of the numinous because they don't have it themselves. They say, no, you're just dreaming, you know, give them some more pills. You know, he's kind of going crazy. So patients are dying of, you know, uh, they're dying of whatever disease they're dying from. Uh, in many cases, when they really, yeah, right. When they really need to be in vision space as they're leaving us and transitioning into the invisible world. Absolutely. And I guess this might be the perfect time because one of my big goals here uh, at the Rainbow Bridge Sanctuary, which uh, my my partner Madeline and I uh, uh, purchased recently here in Hawaii, is uh, we are... Uh, looking to do something with, you know, deep, 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 deep healing uh, and kind of surrendering to the service of whatever that may look like uh, here in 2020 and beyond. 
And one of those things would be an Asclepian temple is what we're, we're hoping for uh, to do. Uh, obviously, these things take money. Um, and maybe some one of my podcast listeners like, oh, I want to put money towards that. That would be great. Uh, and then, you know, another one is uh, uh, some type of temple for dying, you know, where I, I heard this story of, of these, all these women that, and I don't know if there was men too, I think it was just women, they were told that their voice wasn't good enough to be singing and they had like this trauma that they're vo- like, you don't sing well enough to be allowed to sing in the choir. And all these women kind of gathered together and formed a choir that w- they would be singing uh, uh, like music as the person is dying, as uh, for the person that's dying. And the idea is, and they would be in this like ro- rotating like swing kind of. And the idea is, is that as they're dying, they can't tell if they're in this world or if they're in the next because the worlds are so close. They're so bridged. The women singing this choir seem like angels. And then where they're going seems like angels and they can't even tell the difference. So they don't have the, the fear. They're, they're being held and carried uh, in this way. And it's why I chose the term Rainbow Bridge because it's both there and not there. And the Rainbow Bridge of Norse mythology, the world between God and man. Uh, and also it's in Hawaii and a lot of people will probably be coming to Hawaii to come to this. And, and the idea is that mythically on that mythic journey that they take, they could imagine that they're crossing a rainbow bridge to get there. And also the poem of where animals go, where they die, uh, waiting for those that they love. There's a poem about the rainbow bridge that I heard when I was a kid. So what would an idea, uh, maybe we finish the podcast interview with, uh, what would one of these deep healing sanctuaries, like how could I gather some insight from you and some ideas for, and other people that are listening to this that might, I mean, there's no shortage of need for these healing sanctuaries. They could be everywhere. Uh, How would somebody create one and what would be present there? Who would go to them? And I mean, maybe more, maybe, you know, what would be there aside from, I guess, an Asclepian temple and what, what would happen there? Yes, but um, this is important. Uh, several important matters from what you just shared and from what the sanctuaries are like. Uh, first, the big picture. We all need the breakthrough to the sacred and the personal connection to it. There's a good reason that we call alcohol spirits. We substitute spirits for the spirit. And we substitute those artificially induced drunken states or drug-induced states for spiritual practice and experience. Well, it is, but not getting there that way, not being uh, doing damage to ourselves, not, not being able to remember it. We do need to travel into the non-rational. We do need to travel in, um, and, and we need to travel in, into the universal. Uh, Jungian and archetypal psychology represents this because it is trying to foster a very deep connection to the personal unconscious and beyond that to the collective unconscious and the universe. But most psychological uh, theories don't go there and they don't try to get a person beyond the human into the universal collective. They're just trying to... I think you could only do it if you yourself are there. If you yourself as the physician have been there, only then can you be a guide to get there. Otherwise, you're kind of just saying all the words, but you're lacking the rhythm, as they would say. Oh, very true. We can't bring anybody 
to any place we haven't arrived ourselves. Just, we can't. But we can know something's missing in us and go searching for it and have the experiences and then we might be worthy to be guides. So everybody needs the kind of breakthrough experiences that we're talking about. And I fully agree with you that traditional cultures had them. They were in this, it's central to their cultures and their culture's well-being. And very many, maybe most of them, maybe all of them use substances to get there. But not all traditions use medicines and substances to help us get there. The Escapian tradition did not. Instead, um, the African rituals you're talking about or ayahuasca ceremonies uh, in Central or South America are very powerful and very effective. And they have very much in common with the Escapian sanctuaries. You're going to experience medicine people who have um, officiated ceremonies like this many, many, many hundreds of times. They know the terrain of the inner world. They know how to travel there. You're going to a community where this has been, uh, it's a legacy and a tradition and a heritage for hundreds, maybe thousands of years. And the entire community is organized in support of the sanctuary. They're not alone there, but it's in a community setting. When I reduce my own healing prescription to the simplest possible terms, three words, spirituality in community is what brings us healing spirituality and community we need to get connected to the other side the invisible and we need to get connected to each other and be in an intact supportive loving community and when we can do them together oh we have gold healing gold so <clears throat> traditionally asclepian sanctuaries were holistic healing sanctuaries such as we have today so if people uh, um, I, I hope your rainbow sanctuary will be this, but if people think of places like Esalen Institute or Omega Institute or Kripalu Center, really famous um, healing sanctuaries that have uh, medical practices and nutrition and health practices and spiritual practices, the Asclepian sanctuaries had all of them. People went into the sanctuaries and in Greece, they could stay as long as they wanted to and they didn't pay anything. Everybody was welcome, men and women, emperors and slaves, and people only paid afterwards in gratitude for the healing. And if a slave- So they worked in the gift, essentially. Yeah, yeah, they worked in the kitchen. And if a slave only had an apple to give, that was enough. And an apple might cost a slave more than a new building would cost an emperor. And the divine knows that. The divine knows if we're really giving and give till it hurts, give till you feel it. So everybody was welcome. It was fully democratic. Greek society wasn't at the time, even though democracy was born there, but it was only for the males and the privileged few at the time. But in the sanctuaries, everybody was equal, the slaves and the emperors, the men and the women. And they had nutrition and gymnastics and drama I told the story of the trojan women they always had theaters they all had hydrotherapy it's wonderful that you're on the ocean or near the ocean you can use the great womb of life for healing um and they had well they had what they called psychotherapy uh, the word psychotherapy 
all of our words, psychology, psychiatry, psychotherapy, all come from this tradition. Psyche, psyche in ancient Greek means the soul, soul. Therapy means serve, to serve or attend. A psychotherapist is literally a servant of the soul, not somebody who repairs our brain chemistry. Um, we live in a time where people don't even know what that word means. Right. The minute you say soul, they go, oh, that's that. Like, okay, that's, that is relegated to the world of Harry Potter and, uh, you know, Barney the dinosaur on TV as a kid and Sesame Street, you know, and that's just that, you know. Uh, yeah, but people who are feeling and who are aching know what it means. They know. They feel it. Uh, Shakespeare said, how do we know this, the soul? Uh, we, his words were, see it feelingly. <laughs> see it feelingly. We feel it. And people know, like John knew, and you knew the light was out. And when we talk soul talk instead of psychobabble, people really connect and talk easily and freely that way. How did that affect your soul? How did that wound your core. Get away from the babble and, and the psycholingo and talk with people in a core way with four-letter words, soul talk. Love and shit are both four-letter words. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So the Asclepian sanctuaries had everything that we would include in a holistic health sanctuary today with the addition of the dream incubation as the core of it. Just like if we go to an ayahuasca sanctuary, we're going to be there for a week or two. We're not going to trip every day. We're going to do ritual and preparation and nutrition and training uh, to get us ready for the journey. And when we're ready and when there are signs that say go journeying, then the facilitator, the medicine man or woman will know that and guide us in. Same thing happened in the Asclepian sanctuaries. They were, stayed in the sanctuary for as long as necessary until they had dreams or visions or synchronistic experiences that told them, now's the time to approach the divine and seek your healing vision. And then they went and incubated. After prayer and sacrifice and water purification, then they went into the abaton and they just lay there on the clinic. Our word clinic comes from there too. The clinicos was the sleeping couch for dream questing. So they would lay on. Wow, that's where clinic came from, was a sleeping couch for dream questing in Asclepian temples. Yes. And that's gotten reduced to a medical clinic where anything goes, but nothing's sacred now. Yeah. Yeah. Right. There's a total lack of sacredness in, in medicine that I, that is, it, uh, you know, I had a dream, I think I shared with you, uh, where there was a, like a childlike, stocky, dwarf, troll-looking creature in the mud running with pigs that gave me the heebie-jeebie things that was in the basement of a hospital. And in the hospital, the, the same troll-like roll creature came up and was just trying to go through the process of castrating my dog with like no anesthetic and nothing. Just like, oh, okay, well, you didn't check this box. You didn't click this thing. We only have time for this. We got to hurry. We, you got to pay the bill. You know, it was just, it was so lacking of anything sacred. And it just, I remember the terror of this dream. This is the dream that happened the night before you and I spoke. And, uh, 
and I and I think that I feel a deep craving for the healing. I feel like myself and maybe a lot of other people don't even go to the doctor when something goes wrong, not because we don't uh, believe that the doctor could maybe help us, but the experience is so shitty that it's just not even worth going. They're like not even looking at you. You know, they're, you know, like you're, you're just like a thing, you know, and it's like, well, shit, I will exhaust every other way to naturally heal myself before I drag myself into one of these establishments. And, uh, and I think you were just speaking to that. I sure am. And uh, if we can go back to your dream for a moment, it's the night before we met and had our first deep discussion. And sounds to me like you saw the shadow of Telesphoros, the dwarf in the basement of the hospital. That's where Telesphoros lived. Telesphoros was in the basement of the Asclepian sanctuary at, on Pergamum which was the after costs and Hippocrates Asclepian sanctuary Pergamum was the second largest and most important. And that was the sanctuary of Galen, the second greatest uh, Greek physician who was also an Asclepian priest and used Asclepian dream healing himself to get directions for how to treat his patients. But the dwarf castrating the dog instead of the dwarf coming as a healer. And the dog was one of Asclepius' three totem animals. The dog, right? The dog, the snake, and the, the rooster, the cock. And you saw, instead of seeing the dwarf in the basement coming as a healing ally, and much of our conversation today has been screaming the pain of the misdirected medical system not healing us, so instead of sealing, seeing the dog and the dwarf as healing, when you and I are getting together to be plan this effort and try to bring sacred, help bring sacred healing back to people, you see the dwarf in his shadow dimension doing damage and castrating, the dog being the friend and guide of Asclepius, but he's losing his potency and being neutered. And that's what that's what's happening in our medical system, and that's what forgive the metaphor, but that's what you're at war with. Completely. I, I even in the dream recognized that what was happening with the dog, with this troll dwarf character uh, was essentially what happened with me as a child being circumcised and so many children being circumcised. Like I didn't get circumcised for any religious reason or some religious right. Like that was just some thing that happened, you know, it's just like, Oh, okay, here's this thing. And, uh, and extremely painful and no initiation, you know, just here's extreme pain for no reason. <laughs> like, like if I'm going to experience extreme pain, I, I want it to mean something for it to be spiritual in some way. And for the person that's inflicting it to be connected to me in some way, you know, even the, the troll character said, you know, if you look at the dog in the eyes and say uh, it doesn't really hurt or it's not really happening or whatever, it'll it'll help. It'll, it seems to help. Uh, and it seems like that's so often what we do is we say, oh, you're experiencing pain. You're not really experiencing pain. It's not really that bad, you know. And, uh, you know, the very fact that a circumcision is happening without any anesthetic to a newborn infant 
on men that is like the most painful thing you could part of the body, the most tender part of the body, the most tender moment of your life, the most tender part of your body is being cut off uh, by someone who doesn't even care. There's just going through the mechanic. I mean, maybe some of the doctors care, but it's just a complete stranger. You know, you've had no connection with this uh, being prior to that. And then you're just handed over to your mom. That's just looking at you like everything is totally fine while you're screaming. You know, it's a, and we wonder why the men in today's era are, are so fucked up, so to speak, or so insensitive. You know, I, I think a lot of people that get really upset with men that, you know, a lot of men can't cry. I struggle with that. Well, the most sensitive part of our body, yeah. <laughs> the most sensitive part of our body was cut the off. The very part of our body that enters a woman, you know, at least for the men that are attracted uh-huh. to women, that is. Yeah, with greatest sensi- with greatest sensitivity. Yeah. 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 Um, you know, the advantage, I'm sorry to just to have a balanced conversation and uh, not scare all of our <laughs> listeners. <laughs> I'm good at that. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, the foreskin is the most sensitive part. And oh. so we lose that extreme sensitivity. However, the foreskin is also the dirtiest part. And so that's where a lot of um, genital uh uh, troubles and illnesses come if men don't keep themselves really clean down there. So we who have been circumcised are less sensitive and healthier. Yeah, it's interesting that Telesphoros would be considered the little phallic god and that he would wear a hood and that he would come in this role during the during the foreskin. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. right, the foreskin. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, right, right, yeah. So returning to the sanctuaries, I hope... And we should say at least one more, wor- a few more words about Asclepius. You don't have to b- believe in Greek gods or pagan gods. That's not what this is about. Yeah, I think that's. I want people to really understand that we're not trying to turn them into into uh, Grecophile pagans. Um, <laughs> it's not a bad way to go, but we're, that's that's not. <laughs> we're, we're not trying to convert people that way. So the sanctuaries were holistic health and healing sanctuaries that had every form of healing, including so much of what we have today, massage and acupressure and nutrition and gymnastics and psychodrama and astrology readings. But the dream questing was the center. When you're ready, you go to meet uh, the divine this way. Just like the Medicine ceremony is the center in Africa or in South America if people are going to one of the medicine sanctuaries. It's a holistic sanctuary with either dreaming or tripping or some version of getting out of the ego and out of our rationality and out of our left brain and releasing ourselves to the universe, to the irrational the deep collective unconscious so we can finally be connected to the whole again and the whole y'all can communicate with us and give us what we need and show us the path for our, our healing so that's how the Scythian sanctuary works and it is profoundly related to the other sanctuaries that do use the medicine Asclepius didn't use the medicine because it worked to put people into an altered state through all these naturopathic means, through extreme exercises, through radical ritual, through fasting and praying until the breakthrough happened. But it's still altering consciousness so that we can have a breakthrough to the sacred. 
All that being said, <clears throat> we want our listeners to really understand that we are working with what the Jungians call the archetypes. The gods and the goddesses are universal images. We're not saying you need to believe in Zeus or Asclepius or Inanna or Odin or any other one particular god or god image. All god images are particular and personalized aspects of the divine. The divine is all, is everything. We can't express it, the ineffable. And we approach the divine and achieve a personal relationship to some of its traits by using God and goddess imagery. So Jesus is called a doctor and a physician and a healer in Christian prayer. And Asclepius is called that in Greek prayer. And, and uh, the medicine Buddha is called that in Buddhist prayer. It's all, they're all the same. They're all the cultures, the cultures, uh, imagery, stories, and pictures connected uh, to the healing aspects of divinity. And that's what we're traveling to, that we want to. Our whole goal essentially is how do we cultivate a space where the, the divine can reach man? Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yes. And once the divine reach man, healing if it's if it's in that person's fate and destiny will will happen yes because sometimes the wound is 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 a huge gift you know i i absolutely you know i my life that it is today that a lot of people would say oh you're so blessed with all of these amazing things and a lot of this came from continuously moving forward and investigating an internal work but through a lot of pain yes um and carl jung had said that um to experience heaven, uh, you have to have your roots in hell, essentially. You'd have to be able to see the darkness in order to experience the joys. And it doesn't mean you go out there trying to inflict darkness onto the world, but maybe it's what you've done is working with people in dark places. Because in working with people and being an empathic person, you end up going to the hell somewhat with them. At least you participate in being, being in that place. Sorry, my dogs are going absolutely uh, crazy. Is, uh, saying something. The, yeah. Maybe that's the end of the podcast. Maybe exactly they're saying we're done an hour for today. And 30, an hour and 90 minutes, which is the exact amount of time we had a lot. Great. Okay. So, uh, yeah, thank you very much. Uh, how would people connect with you, uh, Ed? Uh, I have two websites. One is just edwardtick.com. And there's contact information there as well as information on my books and my work. And... Uh, I, my wife and I founded and ran a nonprofit for veterans called Soldier's Heart. Um, that We've closed that nonprofit, but we're still doing the warrior work through our own Soldier's Heart programming. So, uh, so I have two websites, edwardtick.com and soldiersheart.net. So they can find me and get information that way. And, um, and my email address is really easy. It's, and, my, and my son laughs. He says, it's, it's Dread Tick. Dr. Ed Tick, D-R-E-D-T-I-C-K. So dreadtick at Gmail. <laughs> and that'll get to me. Beautiful. And then do you still offer these Asclepian, uh, Asclepian uh, dream journeys over to Greece? Do you still do that? Oh, yes, I do. Um, my next one was, was scheduled for November, and it will be in November if we can safely travel then. But uh, 
I've done it. I've led these journeys about 22 times. I have the great blessing of having spent, having had 22 trips to Greece. Wow. Uh, and spending a, a good piece of my life over there studying and practicing their ways. So yes, uh, the next trip to Greece is late fall or winter or as soon as we're safely allowed to travel there again. And where we go in Greece is safe now. I've been in close contact with my Greek friends and colleagues. Virus has gone there. They were super responsible. We all know how the European Union and the United States has trashed Greece because of their economic policy. Well, their coronavirus policy was one of the best in Europe and they had almost no cases and they're completely clean and uh, carefully moving back to normal uh, and, and safe. So uh, I can't wait to go back. Yeah. Yeah. We're in one of those places too. Uh, the big Island of Hawaii, is, mm, uh, there was no new cases and then there was also a hundred percent recovered, no fatalities on this Island. So, Oh, wow. No, no hospitalizations even. So really, wow. really beautiful. But again, very rural big Island is not like the other islands that a lot of people go to very, very rural, very mm. wild, very, uh, yeah, big, bigger, yeah. bigger than all yeah. the rest of them combined. So, Great. Thank you, Ed. Uh, You're I look very forward welcome. To, I think maybe we have another podcast at some point um, after this because we have so much that we could talk about. Yeah, I'll look forward to that and uh, be in touch as you develop the sanctuary as well. What we didn't get to is that there are other Asclepian sanctuaries starting to open up around the world. There are other, other people are bringing back dream incubation. And so we together can unite with them and be part of a bigger movement that brings back access to the to the divine through dreaming and visioning. I think that's a great idea. More power in numbers. Yes. Great. Thank you, Ed. I'm going to press stop okay. right now. Thank you so much for listening. And please follow us to hear future episodes where we discuss topics such as alternative states of consciousness achieved through dance, intention, and shamanic practices, sacred economics, dream work, trauma healing, building community, permaculture, healthy and compassionate living and eating practices, somatic and alternative healing modalities, politics, psychology, mythology, and more. Our work is focused on the liberation of spirit, a return to the sacred, which is a constant collective inquiry. We aim both in person and on this podcast to plant and water the seeds of liberation from economic inequality, trauma, systemic conditioning, addiction, loss of soul, loss of meaning, hopelessness, helplessness, isolation, shame, nightmares, guilt, and a return to glimpses of your birthright, of dignity, joy, community, collaboration, equality, and constantly beautifying new world where you are not alone. And always, if you're ever in the Salt Lake City area, come join us for yoga, dance, or in the garden. A community of beautiful souls are here to welcome you. We gather in community Wednesday, 6 p.m. till 10 p.m. and Sunday, 11 to 3 p.m., and we have a vegan brunch or vegan dinner after every event. Our gatherings are all ages and are of no religious affiliation. We look forward to seeing you.